0: I mean, there's a few yeah. things where I'm like, oh, I could, you know, if I were to do a second draft, I'd uh, add this illustration or this, you know. Because yeah. I've continued to teach on Esther and like enter okay. the Bible courses, and um, I've found even more connections that like I don't even mention in that book that I think solidify the assimilation. I did, I don't even mention, I don't think, in that book uh, chap- in chapter 7 when Esther finally reveals the plight of her people to, mm-hmm. to the king. She, and this is in the Passover context, she explicitly says, if we were sold into slavery, I wouldn't have even mentioned this to you. Yeah. But they want to kill us all, so I thought I'd bring it up. Yeah. Like, that is such an undermining of the Passover tradition that it just reflects the fact that she is not aware of the context yeah. of, of when she was fasting, but also um, because of the two-day dinner party thing that she does. We're still in Passover, you yeah. know, when when she unveils this yeah and she um, says something so anti-passover
1: <laughs> yeah well and it's like the whole thing is a reverse of the Exodus yeah to where they leave with plunder from the Egyptians mm-hmm. now they're mm-hmm. killing but not taking plunder you know except it, I
0: want to point out that Esther and Mordecai do do you? Okay. Well, because I, I don't know. If, Just because
1: they're exalted at the end, because they take all of come on. stuff. yeah, 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 yeah. is the only
0: aggregate in the yep. story, so I, I think yeah. also of the First Samuel fifteen yeah, yeah. subtext. So so um a lot of people are like, oh look, they're they're um they're undoing Saul's failures yeah. here, uh, but I think actually the only people who who are Saulides, uh are taking. Stuff from the only person who's an agagite. Yep. So to me, it's like actually not uh, an undoing. Yeah. It's actually a replication.
1: Yeah, they're not giving it to the Lord or even well, like Saul said he was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're taking, um, they're just
0: taking his stuff.
1: Okay. Yeah. So on that note, maybe, maybe you've read a good amount about this, the agagite mm. terminology. Yeah. I sort of understand that, that it's probably not a reference to his actual heritage. It's mm. just a pejorative phrase. Oh, um, yeah. I think Berlin or somebody hmm. mentioned the, the Jews referred to Romans as Agate. Uh, so right. maybe, so I don't know. Sure, you know. sure.
0: Well, I mean, you know, based on 1 Samuel 15, uh, you know, he's wiped out and everyone else is well, wiped yeah. out. So it's like, okay, uh, how could he be a, a, an actual descendant? Yeah. There? Yeah, it could be affiliation. Uh, yeah, it, it could just be like an affiliation. I love. It is kind of a weird one, although although the idea of it being a slur or you know a, a critical polemical content uh, comment that, um, yeah, totally. But it, as far I mean whatever and however it actually works, he's clearly in that role. Yep. You know, and I think we're meant to think of that subtext for oh, yeah. Samuel.
1: Yeah, for sure. Huh. So maybe this is a. I guess this is all pre-discussion here. We think, and you'd say your book, Esther's canonical, we should, we yeah, should have oh, it. of course, yeah. Um, and I think course. that's right. Yeah. Well, I, I believe that's right. But where do you say, okay, this is like Jewish propaganda literature mm. to some degree. You know, Is there uncomfortability with saying that about a book in the Bible?
0: Yeah, no, that, that's a really good question. So what I have kind of compared it to in some ways um, is, uh, if I can refer to a Quentin Tarantino film, Yes, uh, called Inglorious Bastards. Yes,
2: is that references? So okay. okay,
1: so I met with a rabbi talking yeah. about this, yeah. and I was trying to yeah. explain how I saw yeah. like the like the huge pole and everything. Yeah, totally. So I, and I asked him, "Could could you just say this is like Inglorious Bastards?" Totally. He's like, "Yes, absolutely."
0: Yeah, yeah. no, I I've I've 20. I think that's a really good comparison, and I think actually the more the more you the more you like you know dig into that film and 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 try and like make. You know, connections to Esther, at least the way the story is told, not the specifics of the Mm -hmm. story, but like some of its uh, features and tropes. Um, And probably also at a meta level, like what it's trying to do. I think there are a lot of similarities. Um, You know, in in Glorious Bastards, you have a story that is kind of, kind of, um, you know, trying to imagine like, what if like we had the upper hand? Like, what if we just dominated, you know? And I, I think, um, I think, I'd, I, it, it might, it might be wrong to say that Esther is a full blown revenge fantasy. It might be wrong to say that, but I do think that it, it is certainly like, uh, of of that ilk. It, it is, it is very much like, uh, yeah, just imagining us kicking butt. You know, is kind of the, kind of the idea of Esther, I think.
2: Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. I'm AJ Molnix, and with me is my good friend and pastor of Resurrection Church, Aaron Downs. Aaron, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. We have a special episode today. With us is Dr. John Anthony Dunn, who is a program director at Bethel Seminary. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you have a PhD mm-hmm. from the University of St. Andrews. Thank you. Yeah.
1: And you Not... studied with N.T. Wright, is yep. that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Well, we think that if everybody read books like, you know, Surprised by Hope mm. or Simply Christian, they would be better Christians for it. Yeah. I'm assuming you would, you yeah. know, endorse some of his def- books that I way. I definitely
0: agree. Especially Surprised by Hope. That is my favorite book. Um we we actually had a uh, um a little session with him in San Diego uh right before the pandemic uh during SBL of of 2019 and um uh, we did this event at a church, and I, I, I had asked him, you know, like what what is the what is the book that you're most proud of, or or the book that you wish every every Christian would read? And um, obviously, he's he's written a lot. He's written, mm-hmm. I joke that he's written more books than are contained in the Bible, <laughs> but and some of his books are longer than the Bible. Um, but but he um, he said, "Surprised by Hope," mm-hmm. and and I I'm glad he said that because um, that that is the book that I would I would. 0.2 first for
1: sure. Yep. That's been one of my favorites of his. I read it for the first time, I think, 2020 during oh, pandemic. Wow. So it was really fitting and helpful. Yeah,
0: that's great.
2: Dr. Dunn?
1: Yes. Is that? Oh, John. You John? Can call me John. Okay. Yeah. John. Thanks.
2: <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're doing at Bethel?
0: Yeah. So uh, I'm from Las Vegas uh, originally. So I like to say that my sense of what's normal uh, and mundane is calibrated to Las Vegas. Um, but, uh, I, have been in the Midwest now for upper Midwest for, uh, four and a half years, um, at, at, Bethel Seminary and, uh, teach New Testament there. Um, and yeah, really enjoy it. So I, I, um, am not a Midwesterner. I'm definitely a West Coast guy. I did my undergrad and, and seminary in Southern California, but I've, uh, I've acclimated to things like the, the freezing cold that we have outside.
2: <laughs> what are some of your hobbies? What, what do you do when you're not teaching?
0: So um, speaking of the cold, I do love snowboarding. Uh, okay. But but you know, growing up, we would you know pack up and go to the winter and snowboard, and then pack up and leave the winter. You know, so now I live in the winter, um, yeah. and that's been been quite an adjustment. But um, uh, I also play guitar. Um, I in high school and in college, I was in some metal bands, so um, I'm kind of a one trick pony in that regard. <laughs> I, I basically just play metal. Um, but I enjoy you know reading as well and. Um, Love d- just driving. I'm a big fan of road trips, nice. um, which which during COVID I did a little bit more of that too because you know you could just be by yourself and drive around. <laughs> and I, my family's pretty spread out. We're we're in every uh, continental time zone, wow. so uh, I, I go I go visit every now and again.
2: I think you've done your doctoral work in the Book of Galatians. Yep. Tell us how you wrote this book <laughs> on Esther, which the title is Esther and Her Elusive God. How did you get interested in the book of Esther and then right. was able to write this book?
0: Yeah, so so when I was in seminary, um, I, I knew that I wanted to study and continue to study the New Testament, um, but after I finished my Master's in New Testament, I, I decided that before I jumped jumped into a PhD in the New Testament, I, I wanted to, to take more Hebrew courses, and so I decided to do a Master's uh, in Old Testament and Semitic languages, um, and... Uh, one of the courses that I, that I chose to do was an independent study, um, basically there weren't enough people in my program, and so uh, they had like a repeat of a Hebrew exegesis course. It, it was focused on Ruth and Esther. The, the Hebrew exegesis course that I took was on, was on Genesis, uh, and I had taken other, other Hebrew exegesis and, and Hebrew language courses uh, past that. Um, but the only offering in the, my, the final semester of, of my degree was this exegesis course that technically as far as the code is concerned I'd already taken even though it wasn't Esther mm-hmm. Ruth so I, I negotiated with the professor uh, Tom Tom Finley uh, you know what if uh, I took this course did all the requirements that everybody else has to do for it but you also gave me uh, a couple extra uh, assignments to kind of make it a kind of uh, elective, and that could tick the box that I needed to graduate. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to uh, to do that and, and have me turn in like a 15-page like exegetical paper at the end of the semester, and I decided what I wanted to do, because as a New Testament guy, I'd taken a lot more uh, Greek, you know, um, although this was a, a Hebrew uh, exegesis course, I decided that I wanted to compare the Greek traditions mm-hmm. with the Hebrew tradition of, of the story of Esther. And that paper is what led to this book. And so so yes, I was doing a PhD on Galatians, but I already had that background of doing this uh, exegetical paper that I realized the kind of component parts of what I had done could easily be transferred into chapters of this book. And But then also further, I, I realized nobody talks like this. like Nobody brings these issues up. And I know I'm speaking kind of vaguely uh, about where we're headed in this conversation, but so, some of the things that I was kind of uh, discovering in that in that paper, I just realized, man, there is a lot here that I never heard in church, a lot here that uh, certainly don't get uh, communicated in the romance novels and the the cartoons and the films, these popular versions of Esther that I started to realize, probably inform our understanding of the story of Esther more than our actual reading of the story of Esther in our Bibles.
2: Well, that's something that I noticed when, you know, we've been going through the sermon series, and I don't remember ever hearing a sermon on the book of Esther at all, Mm -hmm. but then I still had this, you know, positive view of Esther and Mordecai as being good guys or examples of faith, and I don't know where I got that from. Right. But until Aaron has been going through the book of Esther... Um he's recommended your book multiple times and I finished it this week and I noticed that you were saying the exact same thing that that Aaron was and obviously mm. that's why he recommended it but Hebrew text and mm. the the Greek text they are mm. very different very there's different. much different content in there right.
0: I think it's a combination of yeah the the kind of popular influence uh, I think that factors in but I also think it's uh it's sort of just this kind of intuitive uh you know, way that we read scripture, where we assume the protagonists are the exemplars, right? So, um, I the example I like to point to. Where it's clearly not the case is Judges, right? Mm-hmm. The Book of Judges. Uh, if we read it that way, we we misread the entirety of that text. And there's some that we might say, well, they're a little bit better than you know. This judge is a little bit better than that judge, or whatever. Um, but usually, what we do is, and it's kind of strange, is, is we we even in Judges sometimes we we treat some of these characters as as. Uh, Exemplary. S- Samson, I think, is the most egregious example. He's often brought up in um, you know children's uh, church type type settings as it's kind of just like this cool story. Here's this strong guy who's like you know using donkey jawbones and like you know killing <laughs> a bunch of people. Isn't that awesome? Which is you know kind of frightening. Um, but what we don't recognize is how. Um, how he's holding the corpse of an animal when he's killing people, mm-hmm. like he's actually impure. And like, like uh, we're all, we also forget that you know, eating honey out of a dead animal—that's that's a massive violation of purity laws. And and um, uh, everything that we know about Samson from the very beginning of his story, even before he's born, is that he's been set out, set apart for this super extreme Nazarite vow, like. The Nazarites in number six, like, they take this vow for a temporary period of time. They abstain from things like cutting their hair and, and drinking alcohol. Uh, but once the vow's up, th- they, can, they can cut their hair. I mean, they can do whatever they want. It's just for the period in which they take the vow. Samson mm. is a Nazarite from birth, so we're set up to think, man, this guy's going to be great. Not only that, his mother is told, you can't even, like, eat grapes, like you know what I mean? It's like that's how that's how far removed we want Samson to be from the vine, uh, and you know he's he's. Uh, I don't think we ever see him explicitly uh, consume alcohol, but he's telling riddles at his wedding, which is suggestive of the fact that this is a party scene. Um, and and I could say more about this, but uh, anyways. S- we are not meant to read Samson in this glorified way, and yet I think we often do. And I think it's this kind of uh, knee-jerk, kind of uh, intuitive sort of idea that protagonists are exemplary. And frankly, even the patriarchs aren't exemplary. The whole sister-wife stuff that we see with, like, Abraham and i i mean, this kind of trope of like, oh, no, 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 that's not my wife, that's actually my Um, sister—that's really problematic stuff. And um, anyways— These are the patriarchs. And I think we just have to recognize that like, we don't have like squeaky clean characters in scripture and that's just how it
1: goes. I think some of these stories lend themselves to children's Bibles or animated films where there's not a lot of nuance to a character to where they're either all good or all bad. And so Esther is easily all good. Like you can make Samuel all good or Samson all good or Gideon or whoever else if you're trying. Right. Uh, But that's not what we find in Esther, and we'll get into that here. Um, And as we do, I want to just start by asking, what kind of book is Esther? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think this book strikes us a little bit differently than most accounts from the rich descriptions of the scenery, where you don't have that kind of description of setting the scene. It kind of seems like there are some historical references, but Mm -hmm. also maybe not. Mm -hmm. Can you help us think about that? Right,
0: yeah, it... It definitely um, has has a quality to it that does seem a bit like over the top, you know. Like for example, at the very beginning, um, rosh, That's his. Uh, he's typically tra- translated as like a or Xerxes, even depending on your translation. But the 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 name in Hebrew, Rosh is basically like King Headache. You know, like it's it's sort of like in in folk tales where you know you might say like you know. Um, Ozo, or you know, where 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 you're you're not really naming the person, you're you're more like describing them with the name, um, you know, like Mister Wise Guy came walking in the door, you know, and it's like okay, that's not their name, but it tells you a lot about them. It's same thing. So like King Headache, uh, Ahashverosh, uh, beginning, you know, begins with this extravagant, you know, multi-month party, uh, you know, with all this exceptional uh, amount of wine, and then once that finishes, he throws another party for seven more days, you know? And, and while that's happening, his his wife is throwing a party, and it's just like, okay, it's pretty extreme. There's kind of like a, a pretty like over-the-top sort of quality to this, but the, it, it continues where you have these doublets, so everything just like repeats itself multiple mm-hmm. times. And then you have like, you know, Haman, when he desires to kill all of the Jews, like that's Extreme. That's so over the top. And then, additionally, when he wants to uh, kill Mordecai, he has this pole and upon which he wants to impale. It's, it's often, you know, translated as like hang, as if it's like, you know, some kind of gallows. It's definitely not like a Texas style, like you know, mm-hmm. hanging in some Western film or something. But uh, impaled upon a pole, and the pole is just absolutely like ridiculously tall. Um, and and so the, these these sort of um, even the beauty treatments seem excessive, you know. When when all of the, the, the virgins are brought uh, to the palace, everything just seems really excessive. And and what what might uh, part 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 of why that might be the case is because the story of Esther is ultimately an etiology, an explanation for the origin. Of Purim and Purim is a festival, and it's a and it's a festival that came to be an, an excessive festival, one that's uh, intentionally uh, extravagant, and and so it's almost as if the nature of the festival contributes to the way the story of the origin of the festival is being told, mm-hmm. and so I, I do see I do see it kind of having some intentional, perhaps hyperbolic elements to it, sort of sort of in a way that we might uh e- e- embellished with some um kind of like cutesy folktale type qualities, even 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 uh stories of, about, you know, uh our recent recent history, you know.
1: Yeah. I think um there are levels of humor that are mm-hmm. woven throughout this, totally. like you're mentioning, either with that name or the name of all of the eunuchs or attendants. Yeah, yeah. Um in in the reversals that happen. Yes. So this week we're going to see Haman thinking he's the guy who's mm. going to be honored and, mm. and that won't be the case. Right. Uh, so is the Bible a funny book? You mm. know, is it, are we supposed to laugh in this book? I, I certainly think so. I mean, with the
0: example of, of Haman, and I'm reverting to my um, <laughs> uh, sort of you know the pronunciation, which I I, I was uh, raised to to pronounce his name
1: Haman. Yeah, and I'm only using that because I met with a rabbi, <laughs> yeah, and oh, he told me to no, pronounce it that way. And I thought this might make people feel a little bit distant from the story, mm, yeah. so they're not feeling like I'm hearing that this isn't the same Esther story I've grown up with in, in Veggie Tales.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I, I I think I think that's that's really great. We have to kind of. Um, uh, defamiliarize ourselves some ways. We have, do have to make it make the text foreign, uh, mm-hmm. and, and realize, yeah, yeah, we're 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 kind of like uh, we're kind of like tourists in some ways. You know, or at least it's it's helpful to think of it like that. So, like, what kind of hospitality uh, is is the text sort of performing, and how, as good guests, do we want to you know sort mm-hmm. of navigate the text? Yeah. I think that's I think there's something helpful in that kind of image. Um, but but uh, so um, when. When in chapter six, when the king can't sleep and uh, you know requests for these these records to be read aloud to him, and he finds out that there was this guy who like. Thwarted this plot to kill him. He's like, oh man, we gotta like honor this guy. We gotta celebrate him. And it is hilarious that at that moment Haman comes walking in and mm-hmm. the king's like, you know, what should we do for the, the <laughs> man that the king wants to honor? And and with unmatched presumption, you know, Haman is like, Well, you gotta have a royal state. He needs to be paraded around town, you gotta put the best robes on him. And the mm-hmm. king's like, Yes, do all of that at once for Mordecai. And it's just like that's fantastic! Like that's absolutely hilarious. Um, it, it is beautiful irony. Um, it, it you know, it's just it's just so good. It's just yeah, so
1: good. especially at that point because it's not too dark yet. Mm. You don't have to deal with the fact that he's dead or his sons are grotesquely, you know, executed. And then impaled after they're dead. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, so this uh, I kind of think of is like, this this is why people stop telling this story Mm. after that reversal, right? Because this is just a lot easier to deal with.
0: Well, it's fascinating you mentioned that. So um, obviously, as like part of my research, I was trying to engage all the popular versions that I could come across, and um, some of them were uh, produced by the LDS Church, and there's this one uh, particular musical uh, where at the very end of the film, it, it says in the credits, you know, uh, if you would like to know more about this, you can consult Esther 2-7 to in your Bible. <laughs> That's like, hilarious. Like, what happens in chapter 1 and what happens in 8 and following it's like a lot of alcohol in yep. chapter 1 and a lot of death and destruction following chapter 7 um i just found that to be like a bit like on the nose like yes. clearly trying to uh keep people away from the text of esther and i think that's 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 i think one of the things that i keep coming back to is we we treat Esther as a story to tell kids or as a story that um, like women have Bible studies for. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong about that, but why does it have to be Esther, right? All, the rest of the Bible is open to you, right? And I think additionally why don't men do Bible studies about Esther, or why don't men preach about Esther on Sunday? So I'm really glad to hear about what, what you are doing. Um, you know, The joke that I make is, you know, Esther is so full of sex, violence, and, and alcohol, and that doesn't sound very ladylike, you know? Yeah. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, right? Not, not to really make a gender comment, but it is so weird how in Church culture it kind of gets relegated. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, a, it's a book for all Christians, not, not, for, not for some, not for the children, not for the women, for everybody, right? And I think, actually, it's a pretty crazy text uh, in many ways because of these things that we bracket out
1: so often. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to walk through every section of your book, mm. because I hope people will read it, because mm-hmm. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. And it's not hard to read. It's mm-hmm. not a technical commentary. Right. You don't have to know Hebrew or Greek to you follow yeah. what you're doing, so yeah. I appreciate that. But I want to talk about Esther and, and the compromises that mm-hmm. we see both with her and with Mordecai. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you can just kind of point out some of the highlights of why we might think she's compromising, mm. instead of demonstrating what it looks like to be a faithful Jew in mm-hmm. exile, mm-hmm. if they're even in exile.
0: Yeah. So definitely, the story of Esther uh, begins during the you know the reign of the Persian Empire, and. Um, if if we if we don't have the the big historical sort of timeline in view, you know this is after Assyria took out the northern kingdom. This is after Babylon took out the southern kingdom, and then we have Persia. And when Persia takes out Babylon, they they allow uh, the 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 the. the the diaspora, the, the the exiles who've been spread throughout, to go back to to go back to their land, to rebuild the temple, and all of this. So it's it's quite curious when we when we start the story of Esther that Esther and Mordecai they're not in Babylon and they're not in Jerusalem, they're in Susa, they're even further away from Jerusalem. Right? What are they doing in Susa? And so it's 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 curious that uh, during a situation in which they're allowed to go back. Um, they're still there, and I think that this already kind of begins to indicate to us the effects of exile. That, uh, as I talk about, that that what we see are are elements of assimilation. That, and 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 probably more importantly, a loss of identity, a loss of a sense of like who we are as as Jews and as the people of God. And um, I, I think that is showcased in a number of ways. And one of the things from the very beginning that we're um, you know, given about them is that we know that Esther's uh, real name is Hadassah, uh, like a myrtle branch, but, but um, we're um, basically like just introduced to that. We're, we're never really given a sense that she goes by this name, mm-hmm. she goes by Esther, which is uh, a name that derives from the goddess Ishtar. And what's so fascinating about that is that Mordecai's name is also derived from a Babylonian deity, Marduk, and Marduk and Ishtar are cousins in the Babylonian pantheon, Mm. just like Mordecai and Esther are, which is already, like, super interesting and curious, Um, but... We're told that Esther has, has been given this instruction from Mordecai not to reveal her identity, mm-hmm. but what's so odd about that to me, and this might be something that we, we totally miss, what's so odd about that to me is there is no plot against the Jews, there is no plight that the mm-hmm. Jews are uh, explicitly experiencing until the, the, the uh, Haman-Mordecai uh, uh, interaction in chapter 3. Mm-hmm. So that means that Esther is already queen before there's plight against the Jews. There is no uh, plight that... Sh- so so for example, what people tend to say is, oh, Esther uh, became queen to save her people, like mm-hmm. implied in order to, like the purpose was to save her people. Um, there is nothing like that in, in chapter 2. That is not accurate, right? It's, it, it's kind of like right place, right time. I mean, that's mm-hmm. basically what Mordecai gets at in chapter 4 uh with her it's not you know oh there you know my people are in this precarious position i need to become queen to save them mm-hmm. that is just not the kind of uh that's not the timeline it's not the sequence uh of events
1: yeah so when you think about some of the gnarly or compromising events that took place for her to become queen you can't say the ends justify the means here right mm-hmm. um we they're they're operating with consequential ethics because they they know they'll save this because it because we just don't there's see no problem right there's no problem um, so I like to say if you pretend this is a TV series mm-hmm. and you've just watched the first couple of episodes you have no idea what's coming right and neither do they right exactly. Um,
0: unless you read the Greek version, which we can we can come back to that. But, yes. but this is why I think the Greek version is so important because it does establish the plight before you're introduced to any of the characters because you get this kind of apocalyptic vision mm-hmm. uh, and, and and that apocalyptic vision kind of symbolically uh, alludes to the different characters in the story and it lets you know, oh, there's going to be this extreme uh, extreme plight. And so and so you, you get more intentionality on the mm-hmm. part of Esther and Mordecai that you don't get in the Hebrew story.
1: Yeah, and I, I think we'll talk more about that as we go. But I think it's good to point out from the very beginning that when other tellings of Esther, whether it's in Jewish literature or in the the Greek edition, there are details added or taken away that right. reshape the story. Right. Um, but what, what are some of the key compromises mm. that Esther would have made if, mm-hmm. if we're trying to say... She's not a hero. She's not a faithful mm, uh, Jew. Right. What what would indicate that well, to so, us? So,
0: for example, I think I think the best way to to go about this is to just juxtapose it with the other book about characters in exile in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so in our in our Bibles, uh, Esther is is kind of synced up with um, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's sort of linked up with these uh, historical books, but in the um, in the Hebrew Bible, so it's a different order, same, same text but different order, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, Esther is side by side often with Daniel in the mm-hmm. katuvim, the, the writings, the section called writings. And in Daniel, we see intentionality from the start, right? Where, you know, he purposes, you know, not to eat the king's meat, right? Not to defile himself. Um, in Esther there's no sense that like oh there are these like food laws that I need to uh, hold on to or you know Sabbath that I need to maintain or you know festivals that you know there, there, there's there's no sense right that 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 um, entering into the king's palace comes with some things that you have to kind of navigate like mm-hmm. like carefully. Um, additionally um, what we're told about the nature of this you know uh, sort of, beauty pageant is the wrong way to describe it, this this basic—and um, one romance novel refers to it as a series of interviews. Um, it's, <laughs> it's obviously not interviews. One of the things that we learn about this this huge uh, parading of, of, of virgins is that the nature of the sort of, you know, quote-unquote interview was that one by one they would spend the night with the king. And so the text does not um you know go into details but it 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 is obviously suggestive that this is a sexual uh, set set of events um and 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 the 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 king was most pleased with Esther it's kind of a creepy line if you think about mm-hmm. it and um and so there is this weird uh hierarchical thing going on but um uh, the the idea of sort of loss of identity loss of um you know loss loss of who we are in the midst of of exile and everything I think that's kind of on display as we're as we're reading we don't we don't get a sense that uh that that this is um you know something to protest because we do see protest in chapter four mm-hmm. Mordecai is more than willing and so is everybody else more than willing to to protest to rent their clothes and lament We don't see that in chapter two and so i don't I don't think we should read into chapter two um you know the idea that uh, this wouldn't have been a step up for a lot of people. It's mm-hmm. it's a horrifying thing. It's gross, and uh, I think it it certainly would have been um, uh, a, a, a oppressive to many. But we we don't we don't see that as like the the flavor of the way the story is being told. Um, it certainly it certainly has more of a quality of um, opportunity to be queen, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah, if, if, this was, if, if we were meant to read it as more uh, problematic, I think we'd see more of the elements that we see in chapter 4 uh, in chapter 2.
1: Yeah, so that comparison to Daniel really shows where he and his friends perhaps will turn down a certain diet or preparation to present themselves to a ruler. Esther fails to turn that down. Um, she marries someone who is not Jewish, so if if you're following the Christian canon, where mm. you have Ezra and then Nehemiah, which right. both decry intermarriage, exactly. you you have that on display. Okay. So, what about Mordecai? Mm. You know, either with that brief mention there, or later on, is he apparently refuses to bow down? Mm. I know there's yep. a, a way of understanding him that he's refusing to. Commit idolatry or something, Mm -hmm. but what do the details of our Bible's text Mm -hmm. indicate about his character?
0: Right, yeah. Um, Yeah, the idea that in chapter three that he's avoiding idolatry uh, is just um, on its face, just not a good reading of the text, um, largely because we see Esther bow down to the king um, later on and. You know, the so so bowing down is a way of recognizing the uh, superior rank of another person. So you have to uh, keep in mind what has just taken place. Uh, Haman has just been promoted. Mm-hmm. He now has an elevated status. Um, we, there might be some jealousy in this moment in, in the immediate context, because Mordecai has just thwarted a plot to kill the king, and this unnamed character... That we've never heard of, gets promoted, not the guy who thwarted the plot. So you, there could be some jealousy, some some um, animosity for that reason. But more importantly, we're told that uh, Haman is called an Agagite, and that's a real important designation. He's called that multiple times in the text. So what is an Agagite? Well, there's this character from 1 Samuel 15, King Agag, that King Saul, uh, the first king of Israel, was supposed to uh, destroy. He was commanded to destroy, destroy him, all the, all the property, and all the other Amalekites. Saul doesn't do this, at least he doesn't do it completely, uh, and this, we're told, is basically why Saul is a failure and why he ultimately um, doesn't abdicate the throne but has it taken from him and passed on to David. And um, that the storyline of 1 Samuel 15 is actually really important for understanding Esther, because not only do we have this character called an Agagite, which is clearly a reference to that story, but additionally, we are told that Mordecai and Esther are descendants of King Saul. We're not told that directly, but if you look at the little genealogy, it references a couple of characters, like Shimei, who is an insurrectionist uh, who would pelt David with uh, stones. Um, uh, because because of the things that David did, like with Bathsheba, for example. So he's this mm-hmm. very, like, anti-David sort of uh, figure um, who's, who's anti-David largely because he's connected to Saul. But then also the genealogy in Esther mentions Kish, and that is the father of Saul. So the genealogy kind of indirectly kind of, you know, doesn't mention Saul, but mentions his relatives, which points to the fact that Mordecai and Esther are Saulides. They're from the line of Saul. So here you have, in in coming back to Esther 3, here you have in Esther 3, you have a Saulide refusing to bow to an Agagite. We have that confrontation, that ancestral feud from 1 Samuel 15, now playing out in this kind of new storyline. And we're meant to bring that context with us as we, as we continue with the rest of, of the story. So the idea that he's um, avoiding idolatry, I think, is just obviously wrong. Like I said, Esther bows to the king. Um, there are so many examples, I list them uh, kind of obnoxiously in my book, all the examples of humans bowing to other humans, and it's clearly not idolatry, it is just a recognition of rank. Um, and in fact, we even have... Persian uh well we have Herodotus talking about uh Persian society and talking about how you, how those of inferior rank bow to those mm-hmm. of superior rank. I mean it's it there is nothing suggestive of worship in this passage.
1: And and you would imagine that while Mordecai is being paraded about in the king's clothes on the horse that probably people are bowing to him. That's a great that's a great point. Yeah. So he, he maybe didn't mind when he was receiving it right um, But someone might say, well if if Mordecai is connected all the way back to Saul and there's this ancient feud and in Exodus, God says, well, I'll be at war against the Amalekites mm-hmm. forever. Doesn't that vindicate his character and justify any actions that he, his failure to show respect to this guy?
0: I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say that there is nothing to that. I I just would want to say that based upon the immediate context uh, and and based upon the fact that he's an Agagite, we just have no reason to think that idolatry is at play. Mm -hmm. Could there be other motivations like this one that was just mentioned? Possibly. Uh, I don't have any reason to think that from the text, and especially as we continue and we see just a lack of recognition of uh, certain aspects of, like, their their um, their sort of collective storyline. I do, I think that that is a um, yeah. Just a it it certainly just is not about worship.
1: Yeah, and and I think it would be a, hard to make the argument that it's okay for Mordecai to hate somebody mm. just because of this ancient yeah. feud, right? Yeah, right. Um, well, I think we might be wondering. Why is it then that we've always had such great conceptions of Esther and Mordecai? Mm-hmm. You know, if if you're saying they're not super faithful mm-hmm. individuals, good examples or something like that, um, what what would be the other pieces of information that would give us a different picture? You know, from the Greek Old Testament or other places, what what's going on there?
0: Well, certainly in the in the Greek version, uh, Greek versions of the story, because there actually are multiple traditions. Um, This is an area where they do some kind of uh, cosmetic enhancement to the story, if you like, where um, Mordecai and Esther are made to be very faithful characters because what we see in Esther is, is of course, a lack of reference to God, but not just a lack of reference to God. It's almost kind of left as that, like, oh yeah, God's never mentioned in Esther. It's actually much more peculiar than that because it's not just that God's never mentioned. It's that nothing resembling sort of like, anything that we might call religious or biblical is mentioned, right? We don't really get, like, references to Jerusalem, the temple. We don't get references to, like, holiness or repentance or, or, you know, just, like, all kinds of concepts, not just that God is not mentioned. It's, like, a lot of stuff is not mentioned. And so it's, it's peculiar, but what the Greek texts do and what even Aramaic traditions do, all these different traditions re- seem to recognize that there's an issue here and they just put a lot of, of of language on the lips of Mordecai and Esther to make them be perceived like other biblical characters that we might think were quite faithful. So they are praying these like great theological prayers, and they're they're um, at all the beats where you ex- you would expect like a reputable biblical character to react. We see that in the story in these in these uh, enhanced versions of the story. But I think what that does is, is it, it kind of actually shines a light on, wow, that stuff is totally missing from mm-hmm. the Hebrew version. And so it kind of it kind of helpfully reminds us of like, whoa, maybe we shouldn't fill in those gaps in the way that um, all of these uh, Greek and Aramaic versions do, and frankly, all of the popular versions do. They follow the same sort of unwritten script in many, many ways. Maybe we should resist that idea of filling in the gaps, and maybe... maybe there's a reason why that stuff is, is missing, and 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 because it is so, um, like, almost in your face by its absence, uh, yeah, maybe we should just resist that. And what happens when we do? And that's kind of the point of the book, is um, let's try to make, make a, a, an account of this story that doesn't try to fill in those gaps in the ways that we've seen it filled in before.
1: Yeah, I think in the... Um, Greek edition, there's a prayer by Mordecai, just telling the Lord that he doesn't want to commit idolatry or honor anyone else. That's why he didn't bow down. It wasn't out of arrogance. Esther says, this crown is like menstrual rags on my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as they are going, as she's going before the king, mm-hmm. she like faints and pass right. out. It's way more he, dramatic. He's in a rage Right, right. that God calms him down. Yeah. Um, and then it takes out Details such as when Haman is leaving that banquet, he just sees Mordecai. It's not Mm. that Mordecai's not bowing down or showing Mm -hmm. honor, he just sees him. Um, So we can understand how modern retellings of Esther are influenced by this, but does this give us a problem Mm -hmm. when we're looking at a Greek edition of the Old Testament being quite different from our Hebrew edition and perhaps other Christian traditions following the LXX?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because the New Testament doesn't draw upon Esther. There is there is a one suggestion that I've seen that maybe in like Mark chapter six with the John the Baptist episode, um, that you know um, where you have uh, this request, you know, I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. um, I'll give you up to half of my my kingdom, uh, and and. The request is, well, I want the head of John the Baptist, right? Um, That up to half my kingdom, I think that's just a regal trope. I don't think this is an allusion to Esther. I think it's just a regal trope. But let's say, okay, maybe that might be. That would be the only place in the New Testament where there's any uh, allusion. And that's not even a a quotation, right?
1: And even if it is, it's Herod making the allusion. exactly. And just the gospel writers recording that allusion. Exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, So it's it's not even a... uh, it's not even a robust one. I mean, it's notable, for example, that Esther and Mordecai aren't mentioned in Hebrews 11. That might be a place where we'd expect to see them, the the quote-unquote Hall of Faith chapter. You know, we we don't see them mentioned there. So there's there's no reference to, to Esther or Mordecai in, in Scripture, or sorry, in the New Testament. Um, and I think that's quite telling. I also think it's quite telling that in other places like in Qumran, which is a site where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are very famous, and most people know them as oh yeah, that's a collection of biblical manuscripts. That's true, not exclusively. There are all kinds of extra canonical texts, and especially texts that we never knew about before, that were written by ostensibly the community that lived there that were quite sectarian and had their own way of, of living that was that was quite strict and, and removed from everything that was taking place in um, Jerusalem. Well, among those biblical manuscripts, we found portions of every biblical text except for Esther. Now you could say that's an accident of history, and that's possible. I just think, given what we know about that community, it's not likely uh, especially because there are other texts from antiquity that they do have, um, it's not likely that this text would just be like willy-nilly like missing. Uh, I think they rejected it, and that's that's obviously um, uh, up for debate. But in in my in my estimation, I think. They're the kind of community that would have rejected it. I mean, it's a text about a festival that they didn't celebrate. It's, you know yep. what I mean? It, it, it has a lot of uh, elements in it that their community repudiates. So yep. I just think it's pretty... Um, what, it, what, it, what, it, what it reveals when we think about it for us as we think about Qumran, the New Testament here, this is a uniquely Protestant problem, I would say. Because as Protestants, what we are saying is that we want to deal with the Hebrew uh, canon, the Hebrew texts. Um, the early Church, they were using the Septuagint, uh, and this is why, for example, like the Catholics and Orthodox have additional texts uh, called the Apocrypha and, and even, even beyond, because the Greek text really becomes the um, Old Testament of the Church. Uh, and it's, that's the tradition, really, until Protestants said, uh, hey... Just notice that the Jewish communities never accepted those texts. Uh, maybe there's a reason why they didn't, and maybe we shouldn't either. So that was kind of a bold move. And you know, uh, we we stand in those uh, Protestant waters, and I think it's just it, it's 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 a very Protestant problem for us to say the Hebrew text lacks these things, the Greek text, which Catholics and Orthodox will accept as scripture, uh you know, clean up a lot of those problems. And so it's not a problem for Catholics and Orthodox. I think it's, it's something that we uniquely have to reckon with as Protestants, and that's what I was trying to do in the book, is to say, how can we take the Hebrew text on its own terms mm-hmm. and 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 treat it as Scripture with the kind of story that it is, and not sort of furtively make it the Septuagint by filling in the gaps mm-hmm. in the same way that the Septuagint does. Uh, because then otherwise, why don't we just <laughs> look to the Greek text that's in our Catholic Bibles, yeah. for example?
1: And I think the Protestant nature of that problem is highlighted when you look at Jewish writings about Esther, because even though they might use the same Hebrew text, they're relying on uh, editions where their commentators fill in the gaps, so to speak, and um, in in. Where there are some Jews who don't observe Purim, the holiday connected to this, so but they at least have old writings to lean on to and say in this Talmud or or whatever. There's this tradition where we see that Esther was actually righteous or something like
0: that. Yeah, yeah, because because um, as I as I mentioned, you have these Aramaic uh, translations, and what's interesting is so these are these are called uh, the targums or the targumim. And the uh, every every text of the the Hebrew Bible has has a single targum. The, the Torah has multiple. The only text outside of the Torah that has more than one targum is Esther. Mm-hmm. That's really significant. It's I think suggests that a lot of people found this text to be peculiar and ambiguous and and needed it needed commentary. Mm-hmm. And so you have these these two independent Aramaic traditions, and you have these two independent Greek traditions. Um, That, to me, is all very suggestive of the fact that um, work was needed to sort of control how the story was interpreted.
1: Uh, Well, I appreciated your comparison of Esther and the additions to Esther to The Wizard of Oz Mm -hmm. and Wicked, um, because I think you show that you can enjoy both of those stories, Mm -hmm. but they're on their own terms. And I think that's true for Esther. We can enjoy the... Greek edition of Esther, correct? Mm. Oh, yeah. I think
0: we can uh, as its own sort of product. But when we're sort of talking about the Hebrew story, I think we have to uh, make some distinctions in our in our minds about like what it is we're talking about. I, I think we do this with a lot of kind of pop cultural canon. So if we're talking about Wizard of Oz, right, you can enjoy Wicked. Obviously, when you watch the Wizard of Oz, though, you don't want to import Wick, wicked back into the Wizard of Oz because it's not thinking about. I mean, it's prejudicial. Like what it says about um, uh, the Wicked Witch. You know. Only, you know. Or, or actually, what the what the Good Witch says. Uh, she says. You know. Only only bad witches are ugly. Like that is a prejudiced comment. And that's the kind of thing that Wicked takes up and explores uh, to great effect. Uh, well, what if the the, the, the witch uh, was, was green uh, beyond her control and mm-hmm. was sort of like forced into this role, right? And yeah, when we watch the original film or read the original text, um, obviously we can't take Wicked back with us because we're not really going to find it there. It actually does have problematic things that have to be reckoned with. And I think I think that's helpful way to think about uh story of Esther there are problematic things in the Hebrew text we don't want, we shouldn't take the greek back with us to the hebrew we have to reckon with the hebrew on its own terms yeah.
1: I think the most significant addition to the story of Esther is the explicit reference to God that shows up over and over again in these other traditions. Can you talk to us about how you handle God's absence of right. uh, the elusive God yeah, the of elusive Esther God. in this text? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think the
0: one place that people point to where they say uh, God is, is mentioned in the Hebrew text is in chapter 4. And this is when Mordecai, um, you know, they've we've just heard Haman has this, uh, or really the king has sent out this edict because Haman has influenced mm-hmm. him, uh, you know, that we're gonna kill everybody throughout all the provinces. If you're Jew, you're dead, right? And it's gonna happen on this day and you're toast. And so everybody reacts um, in lament. And in chapter four, Mordecai goes to uh, Esther and it's kind of speaking like indirectly through like some, some servants or whatever and um, they're having this back and forth conversation because obviously Mordecai can't just like go literally talk to her side by side. And um what, what Mordecai says is that, you know, relief and deliverance uh, you know, w- uh, might come from another place, right? And this language of from another place, people have thought, oh, this is, uh, this is a, a reference to God. And what's curious about that is, uh, it, if that's the case, you know, why speak indirectly? It's just a question, why speak indirectly about it? But if that is the case... Then we're saying that Esther is a place and God is a place. Mm-hmm. That's just weird putting them on the same pedestal to talk yeah. about place like that. Um, uh, but additionally, I, I, I think when we look at the context of that of that of that verse, he's saying that that um, you know if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will come from another place. It sort of seems like what he's saying is that somebody else will come in and help us, right? Uh, but you and your father's house will perish, right? What's really curious about that, I think, is who's going to swoop in and save the day, and then additionally, who's going to tell on Esther, mm-hmm. right? Who's going to inform Est, uh, the king that Esther is actually a Jew and ought to die uh, um, on, that, on that day, um, you know, along with everybody else? Mm-hmm. But if relief and deliverance has come, and and has saved, you know, the day has been saved. All the Jews have been saved by this relief and deliverance that comes from another place. Then we're talking about the only person potentially that's going to die is Esther and her father's house, mm-hmm. which actually Mordecai is kind of connected to that father's house. So that's also kind of a weird comment. What I'm what I'm trying to point out is it's actually a really weird thing to say. And I, I think we skip past this. We just say, oh look, he's mentioning God when he says from another place. Uh, what I would suggest is that we've actually uh, mistranslated this verse, and that actually we should recognize that this is a rhetorical question expecting a negative answer. It makes much more sense with the flow of the story and the context, because there is nobody else. Esther is in this unique position to to do something, because she can just talk to the king, right? Obviously, there's this issue of like, well, I can't go unsummoned, right? Which which gets addressed very quickly. Um, yep. It seems like it's gonna be a real big deal. It's not actually, but it seems like it's going to be. Um, but but so we've got this barrier at least for a moment. Um, we have nobody in the context who could potentially save the day, and so I don't think it's a statement. I think it's a question: Will relief and deliverance arise from another place? No, obviously it's you. You got to do it, right? If you keep silent, is there gonna be anybody to help us? No. You got to you got to say something. You got to do something. And I think it makes more sense of why for example he would say that um you and your father's house would will perish. Uh he's got the he's got the upper hand, you know. And I think that that's that's uh that's part of it as well. But really what I would say is the the, the what what Mordecai is saying is uh you're our only hope. You know, it's it's Princess Leia style, you know, help help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, yep. you're my only hope. That's what I think that's what I think his words amount to. Um, and 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 so when Esther does decide to go and fast, people then say, "Oh, look, she's about to pray and she's about to summon God to 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 uh, to come to come and and save the day." But what's what's difficult about that interpretation? Not only is prayer not mentioned, uh, but additionally, she's fasting with her handmaids, so if we are to assume mm-hmm. that this is some, like, religious thing dedicated to Yahweh, it doesn't appear to be the case, given the, the involvement of her handmaids. What's most problematic, though, about all this, because everybody wants to see in, in Esther's fast and in Mordecai's comment about From Another Place, a kind of appeal to God, what's most problematic about that is this is the start of Passover. mm mm-hmm. And it's, it's very kind of subtly mentioned, uh, the 13th day of the first month, uh, or is it the 14th day of the first month, I'm... I'm uh
1: yeah, I think the edict was on the thirteenth day. The thirteenth day, yeah, yes.
0: Passover starts on the fourteenth, yeah. right? So it says it says it says the thirteenth day. It's sort of like if I were to say um, on the twenty fourth day of the last month of the year, right? We're like, oh, Christmas is the next day, right? Mm-hmm. It's a similar sort of thing. We don't celebrate, you know, uh, Passover, uh, and so we might miss it, right? You know, if if we're not observant Jews, like we might just miss that, you know, and so. It's 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 the kind of comment that is like loud and clear in to the ancient audience and to Jewish audiences. If we don't celebrate Passover, we're just gonna miss it. So when it when we're told that basically Passover is starting that night mm-hmm. and Mordecai and Esther are having this interaction at the start of Passover, it's just really suggestive. The background is really jarring. They're not talk. They're not summoning the God of the Exodus to show up. They're not calling upon mm-hmm. him. They're not invoking his name. They're not uh, expecting that the God of the Exodus is going to prove himself to be the God of the Exodus once more. Uh, and that's, I think, really um, a really problematic aspect of how we point to this scene as being the scene where God is sort of like secretly present, uh, mm-hmm. it, present in their language. I should say that the characters are referring to him indirectly. Um, I just don't actually think we see that, and in fact, this 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 issue of the background of Passover only gets more problematic as we go, mm-hmm. because not only not only uh, have they not mentioned God called upon him in any sort of way, but as the story unfolds, we we of course get this uh, back and forth where where Esther fasts for a couple days, but then she wants to have a a meal with with Haman and the king, and then they have it, and, and the king's like, "What do you want? Like, well, let's do this again tomorrow." Okay, so they do it again tomorrow. Obviously, there's more story happening. But if you just think about the sequence of days, on that on that second day uh, of, of of their meal, we're still in Passover. We're still yep. in Passover, and this is the day that she finally reveals to the king um, what Haman is up to and what this edict is ultimately about. She reveals that she's a Jew and that uh, there's this plight against her people. Right, mm-hmm. and and that's a real. Uh, uh, Important point of the story, and we recognize that, but I think we miss some of the implications of what she's saying because we we probably don't recognize the Passover context too often. What she says is, you know what, if my people had just been sold into slavery, I wouldn't have bothered with any of this, but mm-hmm. he wants to kill us all, so I thought I'd bring it up. <laughs> if we think about that for a moment, she has just undermined the whole Passover tradition mm-hmm. with this comment during Passover. Yep. And to me, I think all of this is highly suggestive that really what we see with Esther and Mordecai is this kind of loss of identity. It's almost a parody. It's 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 just it's just a lack of awareness of the of like where they fit in the storyline. And so yes, they saved the day. The, the 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 Jewish people are not exterminated as the story unfolds from there because of this pivotal moment, but it's this sort of like not not because they called upon the God of the Exodus to show up. The God of the Exodus shows up, but but not because they called upon him.
1: Yeah. So if if God is absent in what some might say are subtle allusions to him in Mordecai's speech or in fasting that doesn't have prayer, mm-hmm. so if he's not present in their words or their actions, is he president? Is he present in all the coincidences along the way?
0: Yeah. So the the coincidences are the places where where I, I, I sort of wonder if the author is, like, winking at us. I especially think, you know, when the king can't sleep, you know, I think that's a moment where we might want to point to and say, um, there, there's something going on here. There, there there are these coincidental things. I also think we have to keep in mind the story of Esther is a story about luck, right? Because Purim refers to lots. Mm-hmm. That's what Purim is. It's, it's the plural of pur, which is a lot. And, you know, Uh, Haman casts these lots to determine which day he's going to exterminate all the Jews, and and the 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 point is on the day that he chose, actually the reverse happened, right? None Mm -hmm. of the Jews died, and they just killed like seventy five thousand eight hundred plus people, right? Like on on um on the day that they were supposed to be. Killed, And so you have this idea of, like, luck and chance kind of built into the story, and so I think the story of Esther is kind of playing with the idea of luck and chance and God's providence in some ways. God is obviously not mentioned, and so we have to, I think, uh, reckon with that. Um, but what I would say is we do see some evidence that the author is, him him or herself, aware of some of these um uh, sort of traditions um, and some some of this uh, stuff that lets us know that okay the author is is probably doing something intentional. So for example, I, I talked about the kind of biblical subtext of First Samuel fifteen. So that mm-hmm. that that reflects something about our implied author. Uh, I think additionally, there's this fascinating comment not on the lips of a of a Jewish character, but Haman's wife mm-hmm. who says like, oh. Well, yeah. If he's from the seed of Abraham, okay, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or however she mentions it, you know, like. Um, yeah.
1: yeah, I think she says if you've already started to fall before him because he's a Jew, yeah. you will fall before him. Yeah,
0: and I think she uses language yeah. of seed, um, uh, which 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 is at least suggestive of the Abrahamic covenant. Sure. And, and so it's just interesting that you've got these you've got these little moments because, of course, the Abrahamic covenant would be annulled if Haman was successful, right? Because this large offspring would just be
1: completely annihilated. Yeah. So I, I mean, I have some question about that because yeah. it's not altogether clear to me mm. that if this edict was to be carried out, yeah. that every Jew in Jerusalem, for instance, would also be wiped mm. out. I, that may be the case. I, I think.
0: I think this goes back to the hyperbolic nature of of it, right? I mean, how do you execute this? Plan? Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. The logistics of it aren't clear. I, I sort of take it at face value that the intention is to kill every single sure. Jew. Okay. Um, which, which on its face is just uh, obviously uh, contrary to the Abrahamic covenant. So yeah. that's why I think yep. her comment is just really interesting um, because it's not Esther or Mordecai that talk like this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I think I think we we would hope to see that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's I guess where I see a little bit of what we might call Jewish propaganda embedded mm. in there of you want the Jews around, you want to bless, you know, mm. like everybody knows this. Mm. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that. Sure. And I'm glad we're talking now because yeah. I haven't preached this section yet. But <laughs> I, I wonder if we're supposed to say these hints of, at God's involvement equal God's stamp of approval on things mm. or um you know whether it's the 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 excessive killing i think in response to this or something else is is there also something of a warning of attaching god's mm. activity to something here mm-hmm. i i don't know how to sort this out
0: no that's a really good question i haven't uh i haven't i haven't given that a ton of thought um you know it's it's funny um when reviews of, of my book were first coming out um a couple of people who were um, you know very aware of the kind of problems that I was raising? Who recognized like, yeah, like the story does not include uh, God. It doesn't include a lot of religious imagery, things like that. Um, the 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 cri- some of the cri- criticism I, I got was, um, oh, oh, but um, he still thinks God is in the text somewhere, and, and it's just funny because like it wasn't like critique from the other side where it was like, oh, he's he's really messing up my, my Bible. And, yeah. and you know, like... He's I He's too mean to us. Yeah, or. yeah. I didn't get a lot of that. The criticism I got was basically like people like, he didn't go far enough. Huh. Like, like, like the reality is, is bleaker than he describes. Yep. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe that's true. But what I would say is I, I did very intentionally kind of view my book as sort of trying to straddle uh, a position between... Uh, those who kind of hold to a more or less a traditional view that, that that really basically say that the absence of God is actually meant to point to the presence of God uh, and that, that basically uh, you know we see God everywhere in Esther and and he's not mentioned because he's he's always there or something like that so there's kind of this traditional view that that Basically, just fills in the gaps, and then you've got, I think, a, a kind of broader, more um, academic view, and a lot of a lot of commentaries that you'd pick up will point out a lot of these issues, these problems, and just basically, you know, kind of talk about how the Septuagint, you know, fixes these problems. And um, you know, I was trying to, I think, navigate a middle road that mm-hmm. that acknowledges the very serious issues and the um, academic uh, conversations, tries to make some of that accessible uh, to yeah. a wider audience, uh, but also cr- tries to navigate a, a, a path that says, like, okay, how, how can we take this on its own terms and, and also see it as a, a, a scriptural text, yeah. right? I mean, that's part of the subtitle of the book, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciated the way that you said we need to distinguish between the character's perspective mm-hmm. and the author and reader's yes. perspective Definitely. to where the characters don't see God at all, right. And where we have an impulse to see God in these coincidences, right? That that's maybe an indictment against mm. them a little bit. Mm. I think my concern is I'm trying to think, how do I preach this? Yeah, is yeah. I I want to call people's attention to God's action in the world, mm-hmm. but I think we also can just see all over the place where people attribute something to God as if this is an act of God's judgment or God's mm. grace in attaching God's perspective on it giving it a god's eye view when right. none of us really have that.
0: No, that's really good. And that's a that's a that is a a, a bigger bigger issue in kind of uh, Old Testament hermeneutics even. Yeah. And yep. I think um you know, I didn't reflect explicitly on that for for my my study on Esther. I think, you know, this was Started over ten years ago, yeah, and if yeah. I if I were to revisit some of this, I would want to. I have a I have a buddy um, doing a PhD on violence in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know when we talk about certainly the violence in Esther, but also elsewhere, um, there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on that I I would I would be interested in revisiting some of that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, well, and we're now coming through a pandemic where people attach or don't see God at all in every... Mm. And, and it's just putting that issue of how do we interpret yeah. and navigate our world and God's right. presence in it. Right. Um, so, but obviously, I think you are not focused on that. You're you're telling the story and helping us understand why we hear it in a different way. But when right. we come to the end of Esther, I think if, if we were Jewish, we would say, well, the whole purpose of the book is spelled out for you mm-hmm. right there. It's so that you'll celebrate this carnivalesque holiday, mm-hmm. A Jewish Mardi Gras, we might mm-hmm, say, or mm-hmm, something like that, mm-hmm. and I think it's pretty clear most Christians don't do that. We don't right. dress up like yeah. these characters and right. Boo Haman and yeah, all these yeah, things. Yeah. So, what what would you want Christians in a church to take away from the Book of Esther?
0: Yeah, I, I think I think you know, kind of the the main takeaway that I that I would say is that in in the story in the story of Esther, what we what we see primarily is. Uh, a testament to god 's faithfulness um, and and that 's why I kind of you know talk about the Abrahamic covenant a little mm-hmm. bit in in some of this, especially the seed language that um, haman 's wife uses and the nature of the plight which is complete extermination. The idea of God being faithful um, is the takeaway I would want to make certainly at the canonical level right esther 's in our Bible mm-hmm. uh, so certainly at the canonical level this this idea that um, the Jews weren't ultimately exterminated, uh, you know. Has this um, you know connection back to promises about the prosperity of the Jewish people, and and including within that the the large seed, the great offspring, right? And so, so I, I do think that um, this idea of God being faithful to His people, even when they're not faithful to Him, that God mm-hmm. will uphold His commitments, um, you know. There's a there's a there's a danger that that could be misheard as, oh great you know God is such a faithful God we can do whatever the heck we want. <laughs> I th- I think I think you know um, we have enough voice voices elsewhere in Scripture to uh, speak against that, but I do think that what we get in Esther is a is a testament to God's uh, faithfulness and it's this it's this uh, commitment to His promises ultimately. And so we don't want to assume that we have particular promises that we don't, and we also don't want to uh, um, take advantage of the promises that we do have. So I, I, the takeaway should not be, oh, great, uh, we can do whatever the heck we want, um, but but, but rather um, it's this sort of awe at the, um, the grace and mercy of
1: God. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we come to the end of the story of Esther— there's a king in power who is not God's king. Mm-hmm. It's a fool. He's a foolish guy yep. and he he is so able to be changed by people's opinions mm-hmm. and suggestions that there is not an ultimate safety yet, mm-hmm. um, and I think in one way is maybe a, a biblical theological look at this says <laughs> we're we're looking for a kingdom to be restored, God's mm-hmm. kingdom and God's king, and and we don't find it in Esther. Right, right,
0: and I think that goes back to the Saulide uh, stuff too, because we might be tempted to, um, you had mentioned Jewish propaganda, we might even be tempted to think that perhaps this is solid propaganda, mm-hmm. you know, pro- perhaps yeah. this is counter David. Uh, propaganda. Yeah. Perhaps this is about how what we really need is a different kind of regal figure, one who's from a different line, and yep. and and also maybe not even you know masculine, right? Like a, a feminine regal character, yeah. right? And it's this queen who kind of saves the day. It is kind of curious: is Mordecai the main character, or is Esther the main character? Um, there is some there is some stuff to talk about there, but 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 on this point about the political propaganda of it, and and whether or not. You know that might be going on. It is interesting that going back to that subtext of First Samuel 15, we t- we we tend to see that as um, uh, I think a lot of people who recognize it, the Agag Saul connection, mm-hmm. they say, "Oh, look at the end of the story. You look at the end of the story, and you see all of these Jews throughout the provinces not touching the plunder. You know, as they're mm-hmm. as they're um, fighting back, they're not touching the plunder. Uh, that." That takes us uh, right back to First um, to, uh, Samuel 15, where, where they were told to destroy everything and not take any plunder. Um, the problem with making that kind of a connection... Is that what people tend to do is say, hey, look, Esther and Mordecai are overturning the problems of Saul. So then what mm-hmm. the point of the story of Esther and the point of the subtext is to say, look at these great political figures, going back to the propaganda stuff. Look at these yep. great political figures who who have uh, saved the day and who are the ones that we're looking for as against as opposed to David. Problem with that line of thought is that actually Esther and Mordecai take the stuff of the only Agagite mm. in the story. So yes, the Jews throughout the provinces aren't touching anybody's stuff. They're not destroying it, but they're not touching it, so that's good, presumably. But Esther and Mordecai, they take the estate of yeah. Haman, they take his ring, they take his stuff. Um, that, to me, is is not, quote-unquote, not touching the plunder. That is the exact opposite of that.
1: Yeah, they're leaving the plunder that they could have taken from non-Agagites alone, yep. And they seize control of the, of the Agagites. So to me, property.
0: yeah. So to me, it's not a uh, undoing of of Saul's failures. It's a redoing of Saul, Saul's fa- hmm. failure. So I don't buy the um the 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 idea is insofar as it may be propaganda. I certainly don't buy the specific Saulide idea that maybe yep. this is a counter David, uh, pro Saul, uh, propaganda. Because actually, what we see is the. They, they they fail where Saul failed.
1: Yeah. Well, your book is really helpful, I think. It's readable. There aren't many readable commentaries that take this view, which I think is is the right one, ultimately, mm. if you are reading the Hebrew text, mm. the Christian mm. uh, Protestant canon. Mm. So I appreciate the effort you put into that. Are you working on any other projects that people might be interested in if if they find this book interesting?
0: Yeah, um, actually, too many projects. Um, okay. <laughs> so, and and as you can tell, you know, I'm a New Testament guy who wrote a book on Esther. Um, I'm somebody who, who likes to be eclectic and kind of work in different areas, yep. so... Um, uh, my next book that's coming out is on uh, Black Mirror, the TV show Black Mirror. It's a technological dystopia okay. show on on Netflix. Uh, n- not connected to Esther or Galatians <laughs> in any way. Um, it's an edited volume with a number of contributors uh, looking at Black Mirror from a theological lens. So you've got essays on philosophical and ethical and biblical studies and theological sort of uh, yeah contributions um, thinking about these. Basically, short films of Black Mirror, which kind of look at the role of technology in society and in relationships. It's kind of like a Twilight Zone, so it's kind of creepy. It sort of replaced yeah. the supernatural with with the technological, and that's basically what Black Mirror is. Huh. Anyways, so I've got a a, a, a book um, coming out in May on on this, and I'm working on a number of things. I'm kind of. I've got some follow up on on the Galatian stuff that I'm doing. A, a short book on Galatians that I'm that I'm doing. A book on suffering and the sacraments that I'm doing. I'm also working on a biblical theology of alcohol um, for for Zondervan as part of okay. this biblical theology for life series, where I will be revisiting Esther because there's there's a lot of alcohol in the story of Esther, as I've uh, mentioned a couple of times. And so that 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 book there, that um, I'll finish that at the end of the year, Lord willing. But that. That book is really, you know, trying to, you know, get past the the typical way that alcohol is treated in the church, which is like a should we, shouldn't we, can we, can't we kind of permissibility, and actually kind of think theologically about the symbolism and imagery that we have, because whatever we might personally make of alcohol, um, our Bibles are soaked with it. Mm-hmm and 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 reckoning with its imagery uh i think is really important because we might just sort of sideline it but it's connected to so many other b- key biblical theological motifs uh and 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 threads like kingdom and covenant and creation and so and temple so um anyways that's that's the that's one I'm really excited about. Um, hopefully, it will be out next year.
1: Okay. Well, I look forward to your treatment of Isaiah 25, yes. one of my favorite texts yes. in the whole Bible. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. I would just love to pick your brain about all of the things that you talked about, but we've been here for quite some time already, so thank you for, for helping our Church and
2: serving us in this way. Cheers. Thanks for having me. I do have one question to ask. You used examples of The Wizard of Oz and Narnia and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, but there was a glaring omission. Was it Harry Potter? It was Harry Potter. How (laughs) did you not have something about Harry Potter in this book?
0: You know, that's a really great question because I'm actually... Obsessed with Harry Potter. It's probably it's probably the one that I enjoy the most out of all of those that's been mentioned. And I've actually um, written on Harry Potter uh, like in academic uh, settings. Like I said, going like I'm, I'm quite eclectic in my in my interests. Um, yeah, I didn't mention Harry Potter. I'm trying to think.
2: I had read Harry Potter by that point. Uh,
0: why didn't I mention Harry
2: Potter? I don't know. I think for the next. Edition of your book, you can figure out a way to... to yeah, if that
1: helps, I love Harry Potter. And in fact, at this church, we did a Christmas outreach called Harry Potter and the Heart of Christmas. Oh, I love And that. I cannot find a way to reference Harry Potter so far <laughs> in the Book of Esther. Okay, um, that, that helps. But perhaps you'll be able to in your alcohol book, yeah. because I think especially in the Half-Blood Prince, mm, you have yes, multiple yes. scenes where alcohol is shared or yes. denied. yes is indicative of fellowship
0: no that's really great actually at one point i wanted to do a study on alcohol in harry potter but um uh, actually a great study was already done it was called no way. uh it was called uh risky frisky fire whiskey something <laughs> like that it was just this really great title um by um laura camachi i think i, I may be mispronouncing her name but her um so her study is really good so i realized okay i don't need to do it but what i think of with uh half-blood prince is not a literal alcohol motif but the um the uh image in the cave when dumbledore uh is continuing to drink yeah, the cup yeah absolutely um so obvious obvious connections to the cup of wrath uh the cup of gethsemane a lot mm-hmm. of stuff there that's just like really powerful um yeah, that's 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 one of, that is one of my favorite scenes uh, in all of Harry Potter. Um, and uh, but yeah, I, I did not think of a connection with Esther. Um, you're right. I I, I I did I did sort of like tick the boxes of all this kind of like pop culture. Yep. Um, but that's that is a glaring omission.
1: <laughs> uh, well, maybe we can get you back in the future to talk with us about Harry Potter and uh, reading it as Christians.
0: That would be great. Okay. I did do an article once on Till We Have Faces. I don't know hmm. if you yep. guys have read that by C.S. Lewis. Um Till We Have Faces kind of sounds like a um, maybe a documentary about 2020 and 2021 with our yes. <laughs> masks mask wearing. Yes. I thought about <laughs> that during COVID, but um but Till We Have Till We Have Faces is this brilliant book. It's sort of rooted in the myth of Cupid and Psyche that basically Lewis wants to retell and sort of reimagine like the motivations of certain certain parts of that that myth. Um, but I think in the way that he tells the story, he's actually incorporated a lot of allusions to Esther. Uh, mm-hmm. So I did write an article on
1: on that. No way. Well, is there a central place where we can find all of your writings?
0: So um, there is a website called academia.edu, which is kind of like a um, sort of, you could say, like a Facebook social media type hub for academics where they kind of can upload their CV or like certain... Um, articles that they've written. So I do have a, a few different things up there. Um, sometimes there are like embargoes, so you, you have to like wait before you post certain things or whatever, but um, it, is a, it is a great place to kind of make uh, some of your scholarship accessible, especially if you don't have access to databases to like download those journal articles. It's just a way to say like, hey, here's one
1: that wrote or whatever. Yep. Great, yeah. well,
2: well, thanks again. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. You can find out more at resurrectionnn.com.